Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, who for just a few more weeks is enjoying the lovely weather in Budapest, Hungary, before he goes back to Witts University in Johannesburg. So I think for one of the last two or three weeks, uh, this is hello from Central European University in Budapest, Kobus. Yes, hello. And uh, also, we're going for the first time, Kobus, to uh, Zhejiang, China, where we're joined by Viola Rothschild, who is at the Institute of African Studies at Zhejiang Normal University, doing a Fulbright Fellow. Uh, and uh, she's studying, this is what's very interesting, African students, and, is it African students and entrepreneurs in China or African student entrepreneurs in China? Uh, it is student entrepreneurs in China. So student basically just students that are, are taking classes and uh, also doing business simultaneously. So you're in the city of Jinhua, and funny enough, you know, China has these cities that nobody has ever heard of. Uh, but Jinhua, you know, has five million people, which by any standard is a huge city. But in China, that's a mid-level size city. But I guess before we get into why we've invited you on the show, um, typically when people study Africans in China, the focus is on a you know, on the southern Chinese city of Guangzhou in Guangdong province. What brought you to Zhejiang and are there Africans out in Zhejiang province? Yeah. Um, so one of the big reasons I'm in uh, Zhejiang is because uh, Zhejiang Normal University, where I'm based this year, um, has a fairly reputable Institute of African Studies. Um, and I had read some work by uh, professors in the institute, um, particularly regarding uh, Iwu, which is a, a kind of small trade commodity city. Um, it's actually it's a massive trade commodity city, but they the commodities are small, um, but uh, about 30 minutes away. And they actually have China's second largest African population there. Um, so that is kind of what brought me here. Okay. Well, while you were in uh, in Jinhua uh, a couple weeks ago on May 5th, you posted a very interesting blog post uh, focusing on online reaction about the demonstrations and the riots in Baltimore, Maryland. So a lot of people may be thinking, well, why are we talking about, you know, Baltimore, Maryland and the riots around Freddie Gray? Now, for those of you not familiar with Freddie Gray, he was the young man who died in police custody uh, and sparked, you know, weeks of, uh, of unrest in Baltimore that to some extent are still going on today. But interestingly enough, one of the, the things that you wrote about in this article on May 5th that was posted on Tea Leaf Nation on the foreignpolicy.com website, uh, which you wrote, when Baltimore shook with anger, here's what China saw. Online reaction revealed much about Chinese tension with an influx of African migrants. And what was so interesting is that it was one of the most viewed stories on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project with almost 5,000 views, which is much higher than normal for us. And then you had almost 3,000 shares off of Tea Leaf Nation. So you clearly tapped into a nerve here. And in your article, you wrote about the, the flaming up of xenophobia, of racism, of kind of cultural, kind of people being culturally uncomfortable with with blacks and the conflation of African-Americans, Africans, and all of this together. So kind of tell us a little bit about kind of what sparked your interest in the, in the topic and kind of you, you said you, you, in the beginning of your article that you were talking with a friend who was just spouting huge amounts of ignorance when it came to, to blacks and African-Americans. And, and then that motivated you to kind of go with this piece. Right. Um, so the idea for the article um, basically just came from feeling incredibly disconnected from everything that's happened in the States over the last six months or so. Um, 
sort of starting with Ferguson and then Eric Gardner in New York and, of course, most recently, Baltimore and Freddie Gray. Um, and I've wanted to contribute to these kind of larger discussions um, that I've been seeing pop up on my Facebook feed and in the news and just with my friends and family in the States um, and just feeling like I couldn't really. Uh, and then a couple weeks ago, the protests in Baltimore broke out. Um, and after a series of conversations with Chinese friends, um, you know, none of whom I would immediately categorize as racist, um, I, I was consistently pretty kind of rattled and just like disturbed by how they were acknowledging some of the, the root causes of these protests, but then would hone in on the fact that these were black people protesting in what they saw as a kind of inherently like black way, so violent and out of control. Um, and, and that was a problem with, with them and not so much a problem with, with America or with the system. Um, you know, so then I started looking at how Chinese news sites were covering the protests and how a kind of larger sample size of Chinese people were responding. Um, and maybe I shouldn't have been so surprised, uh, but the number of people that were making the direct connection between the African-Americans protesting in Baltimore and the African traders living in Guangzhou was staggering. Um, and then, you know, that ties directly in with some of the work I'm doing at Zhejiang Normal this year uh, and was something I, I felt like I had something to say about. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more. So, so the the issue is that essentially that that race is seen to trump any other kind of identity. That race, that that blackness itself becomes this kind of reason for everything, rather than, for example, you know, the, the, you know, kind of issues in the American system or you know, treatment of Africans in you know, kind of as as foreigners or so. That 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 race essentially stands for becomes more important than any other kind of identifying principle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, like I said in the article, I mean, in in China, which is somewhere that historically has like not been not been super exposed to foreigners in any capacity, um, this kind of idea that there can be different like kinds of, of black people, you know, whether it's uh, Africans from Africa or African Americans, Afro Caribbeans, you know, and, and now these um, these kind of African traders that are that are coming into China, um, there, there's really a lack of distinction there. Let me read a quote from your piece, uh, and this just kind of goes to it. You know, quote, there's little or no effort here to distinguish between Africans, African-Americans, African-Europeans, Afro-Caribbeans, or recent African migrants to China. They all fall under a homogenous umbrella, Khiren, or black person, attended by a variety of sweeping stereotypes, including a proclivity for violence and crime. Now, China is a country that is 93% of one ethnicity, the Han Chinese. So again, to your point, you know, people on the everyday kind of the street don't have a lot of experience or opportunities to interact with other people from, from different cultures, races, backgrounds, whatnot. Uh, the Chinese themselves um, will are, are equal opportunity in their discrimination. So you'll see the way that Han culture oftentimes discriminates or kind of trivializes their own minority cultures in, you know, whether it's Muslims from the far mm. west, whether it's Tibetans and whatnot. Um, and I think it's just this kind of idea that the ethnic, the ethnic Han culture is a supremacist culture. And that is something that Martin Jack in his book, when, he, when China Rules the World, talked about, you know, this idea that China was the center of the world for a long time, Zhongguo, you know, the middle kingdom. And that ethnic, that ethnic kind of identity accompanies that type of supremacy in that sense. Not, white, not like the same as white supremacy. It's a cultural type of supremacy that goes on. And I guess... My question to you is that when you see this kind of manifest, particularly online, is it, is it a, a fair way to assess 
uh, or to come to any conclusions about a culture, uh, in part because I think if you were in the United States, if we were looking on right now, um, and you were a Chinese kind of scholar studying at you know, UCLA in Los Angeles, and you, know, you wanted to look online to see kind of a sample of public opinion, you would probably find an equal amount of equally barbaric, unsophisticated, ignorant, racist kind of conflation of both Africans and African Americans. After all, the far right says that Obama himself is a Kenyan Muslim, right? I mean, that's the same type of conflation. So I guess, you know, how much of what we see and what you think based on your time in China is just online assholes and trolls who are ignorant, and that's what seems to show up online, and how much do you think it really represents a broader kind of feeling within the culture and the lack of sophistication that Chinese do have about race and multiculturalism? Yeah, I mean, that's something that I was grappling with when I was writing the article, kind of um, trying to trying to determine just, just how representative this group of comments was. Um, and I mean, it was also kind of corroborated by, by these anecdotes um, I was hearing from some of my African friends and like informants here. Uh, and, and one thing that I wanted to get into kind of much more in the article, but couldn't was, was this kind of racism versus ignorance debate. Um, and, and kind of based on my interviews and experiences and just these more casual observations, um, I, I'm not sure I can, I can make the argument that these, these things aren't racist, you know, I mean, obviously people saying like black people get out of China, you know, that's, that's an incredibly racist sentiment to, to express. Um, but I, I think it's different than, than something you might consider, you might, um, kind of bump into in the U S where it's kind of historically, I don't know, like the melting pot, um, mm. Because I think with, with a lot of Chinese people, um, the, it's a little different because these might be the, the first black people that they've encountered um, in, in Guangzhou or elsewhere. Um, and they're, they're really only going off stuff that they, they've maybe seen in movies, you know, like China loves Hollywood. Hollywood is kind of rife with these depictions of, of black people as, as gangsters, you know, the, the angry black man trope um, or stuff they've heard from their friends or, or maybe a news article about a black drug dealer in Guangzhou in, in 2009, you know, who knows. Um, but I think especially for these African student and student traders that are settling into a, a longer term life here in China, um, being able to rationalize this, these kind of like Chinese sentiments as, as ignorance rather than a malicious brand of racism is, is a coping mechanism for them. Yeah, Copus, let me quickly um, ask you a question because I think, you know, these kinds of stories that Viola brings up really touches a nerve in African media. I mean, and it, it kind of mm-hmm. goes a little bit to the Nairobi restaurant, Kobus, which was, you know, banning, you know, black Africans after five o'clock. And I think there's this sense that, you know, Africa is now awash with over a million Chinese migrants who are everywhere. Africa has accepted them willingly or not. And here we have a small and infinitesimal number of Africans in China kind of get facing just, you know, really barbaric, again, you know, discrimination. And so it just, it really, for lack of a better word, just pisses off African social media that this is going on. I guess, you know, and, and so this raises the question of, you know, reciprocity. This raises the question of, can African states use this as a way to say, listen, until you treat our migrants better, we're going to kind of crack down on your migrants here in Africa. And it just seems unfair that Africa has taken, you know, refuge home illegally, legally to so many Chinese. And yet Viola talks about, you know, interestingly, that there isn't a welcome mat in China. Mm, 
Um, the one issue that I immediately have to point out is that they are already being there's already being cracked down on on you know kind of on migrants in Africa at the moment on Chinese migrants. I mean, we talked a while ago. We talked about kind of crackdowns against Chinese in the DRC, um, and recently Mingwei and I discussed Mingwei Wang and I discussed um, the you know kind of the the difficult life of of Chinese in Johannesburg in amid the, the xenophobic attacks there. So this is already happening in Africa. I think the for me, I don't think you know, kind of oh now Africa is responding to China to Chinese racism, I think China and Africa is in the same boat here in the sense that there are historically countries that have experienced a lot more out-migration than in-migration. They're not used to thinking of themselves as as places people migrate to. Um, They're more used to thinking of themselves as places people migrate from. Mm. And they also have no, no vocabulary to think of themselves as racist. They have no, you know, one thing you have to say about the West, you know, I mean, the West has a horrific kind of tradition of racism, but they've also managed to actually think of themselves and articulate, uh, you know, to develop a whole set of articulations about talking about themselves as racists. You know, kind of, they have a whole, there's a whole set of of words and, you know, kind of, and self-criticisms and self-descriptions that the West can use to talk about their own racism problem. And China and Africa has zero of that. You know, kind of, they have very little to think of themselves as perpetrators of racism. And this you see in action at the moment in Johannesburg. This is happening with with kind of crackdowns on on foreigners, mostly of African descent, in South Africa. And South Africa, you know, South Africans reeling, trying to kind of talk around what this means and coming up with words like Afrophobia, for example. Um, And I think China has the same problem. They're just not used to thinking of themselves as racist, because they're always being discriminated against in other countries, um, you know. Kind of, so I think they're essentially in the same boat here. Yeah, uh, Viola. Let me read you a comment from uh, one of our Facebook users, and he he brought up uh, a very interesting point. This is from Khalid Omar. And uh, quote, he says, it's understandable that there isn't familiarity between Chinese and Africans in the case from people of various African nations and the Chinese. However, do the Chinese view white people in one category and not distinguish between, say, a German, an Irish or an American? And so I guess that's an interesting point here. Is it just blacks that they don't can't distinguish or is it also whites? I mean, do they look at you and say, you know, are you German? Are you Polish? Uh, is that racism extend or that discrimination or that ignorance, whatever we want to call it, extend beyond blacks? Um, well, it's a little different with me because I'm, I'm half Chinese, so they don't know what I am. Um, but I think for, for most uh, white people, um, it's I think on, on first glance, uh, it, it's just kind of all lumped together. Um, but then Americans certainly have a, a cachet that, uh, you know, Eastern Europeans um, um, don't. Uh, But, you know, like, for instance, I I had a Chinese friend text me uh, the other day, and I guess one of her teachers was looking for a a tutor, an English tutor for for her child. Um, And and her text just said, like, hey, Viola, like, do you know any white people that could tutor um, that could tutor uh, my professor's kid? Uh, And and it wasn't kind of like it wasn't English speakers. um, It was just white people. And, you know, I have plenty of African friends that that speak fluent English. Um, like far better than, you know, some of my friends from um, like Bulgaria or like Russia, you know. Um, so I, I think that there there is a an amount of, of that uh, kind of non-distinguishing. Um, but I think once uh, they once they get to to know you, um, where, whereas they kind of wouldn't 
um, wouldn't really distinguish between someone from from Ghana versus someone from um, you know uh, like Tanzania. They they would distinguish between an American versus a a uh, like Eastern European. And Kobus, let me put the same question to you. In in Johannesburg, can people tell the difference between a Japanese, Korean, a Chinese, uh, a French person, an American? No, that's not right. At all. And so that's I mean, why I know, feel they, 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 they tend to look at faces. And and if if person is if person has some kind of um, East Asian parentage, then frequently people all assume they can do kung fu. That, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but see, I guess my point is that this is a pretty universal trend. I mean, it it takes a lot. Of you know, I've been in Asia in and out for 35 years now, so I can see a Korean, a Japanese, a Chinese, and kind of just read it very quickly by clothes, by mannerisms, and whatnot. Uh, but that's taken a long time to to figure out, and I think it's a it's a tough burden to be putting on Chinese to say you know that they should be able to distinguish between African American and, and African African to be able to kind of have that that those racial cues because you know a lot of people don't have that. But I mean, at the same time, it's part of being in the world, you know, kind of, if one occupies the kind of central as occupying in the world economy, and, you know, and that Africa actually, you know, is hoping to to occupy at some stage in the future, um, you know, judging by development plans that they put out this week, um, then you have to be in the world and then you have to actually take the world into account you can't have one or the other you have to have but you have to you know if, if you want the world's money you have to take into account who the world is okay so, sorry that, that's how it works well okay viola let me put this to you as well you know so koba says you have to be in the world one of the big problems in china is that the media that people get there is completely just whack i mean it's because it's so heavily filtered so heavily censored mm-hmm. And there's also, in addition, it's not just a political censorship, there's a cultural censorship, and you being an American can appreciate this as well. You know, we in the United States get almost no international news. We are so self-consumed that you watch the American, the, the nightly news, any of the major news broadcasts, and it is very little international or purely international, not counting John Kerry goes abroad and they cover Kerry going abroad. And so China is very much the same way. It's such a huge domestic media market that they focus very little on international reporting. And so people have a very provincial view of the world. And I wonder how much of that in their media imagery of the world is playing into it, that the, the narratives of Africa in China today resemble that of the West in many respects, safari, happy dancing kids, um, you know, Ebola, you know, this very similar types of themes. And how much do you think you being there now studying, you know, Africans in China and the views of Chinese towards Africans, do you think the media plays in shaping some of these perceptions? Um, I think definitely, definitely a large, uh, a large influence um, from the media, uh, there, I, I was actually kind of surprised by the coverage of the of the Baltimore protests, and also I looked back, back at the coverage of, of Ferguson as well. Um, and those, they they took pretty, um, they they basically just cribbed off um, international news reports. Um, but you know, in terms of in terms of the view uh, that people get, both both from the news and, and kind of I think larger um, like institutional like rhetorics about about China's relationship with Africa um, or kind of. Like what, like what, what's happening there? Um, it's it's very kind of um, it's very kind of exactly secluded, like kind of um, just about uh, what they what they see 
these kind of like simplistic notions about Africa, whether it's um, like colorful clothes and dancing. Uh, and I mean, I've seen that reflected here uh, just kind of in the kind of institutional events at the school, whether it's these kind of African um, like arts and culture festivals uh, where it's great. And, you know, it like gives gives Chinese um, students kind of a chance to see another another side of this that they might not see in the media. Um, but then they're kind of falling back on on just these kind of simplistic uh, notions that they're that they're comfortable with. Viola, I wonder if I could like ask you in the in the other direction to to which to, with these these African traders that you're working with, um, to how bothered are they by this? Like you know, to which extent is it like I can't handle this anymore? I need to go home. And to which extent is it just this is just some of the nonsense that I'm dealing with on a daily basis? And you know, kind of there's other other reasons for me to be here that actually balance those out. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say it's the latter. Um, I mean, like I was saying before, I think that, that them kind of being able to, to rationalize um, this, these kind of like maybe racist comments um, as ignorance rather than racism um, is really kind of a coping mechanism that they've that they've developed. I mean, they know they're in China. Uh, the Chinese have the home field advantage here. Um, and I think that many of these student traders see themselves as like guests almost. Uh, a lot of them are beneficiaries of scholarship money or these kind of unique economic opportunities. Um, sometimes both that they that they couldn't get anywhere else. Um, so they want to fit in. I mean, they don't want to feel ostracized or discriminated against. Um, so I think for that reason as well, uh, they tend to kind of give Chinese people the benefit of the doubt um, and are incredibly patient, um, often use kind of these moments as, as like teaching or explanation moments um, and, and are able to kind of categorize it as, as ignorance rather than uh, racism. When Baltimore shook with anger, here's what China saw. Viola Rothschild, who's a Fulbright scholar at the Institute of African Studies in Zhejiang Normal University. It's a fantastic article, a very, very interesting discussion, one that I think, I hope we'll come back to maybe towards the end of your research and kind of get an update on your thinking and how it's evolved and how your studies have evolved. Also, one little note here, uh, Viola is on her way to the United Kingdom after this, where she will be uh, pursuing a master's in contemporary Chinese studies at Oxford University. And Kobus, you and I were saying how, uh, how exciting it is for us to meet all these young people who are just so <laughs> ambitious and uh, and really, there's hope for the next generation of uh, of scholarship in uh, in China Africa studies and also uh, in the world of business. So, Viola, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the show. We really appreciate it. One of the things that we like to do at the end of every show is kind of connect you with our listeners. Um, I think you're on various social media outlets, and do you have a Twitter account by any chance? I do. Um, I am uh, V R O T H S C H. Excellent. Uh, and. So- and uh, that's a much easier name to remember than Kobus's uh, Twitter handle. <laughs> I'm at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. The and worst you, choice in the history it, of the world. It really is, but it's becoming quite comical now. So, uh, <laughs> But you can find me at E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Also, if you want to follow us, uh, the best way to do it is to head over to our website, all the dots and Ws plus ChinaAfricaProject.com. Uh, we've got all of our old podcasts there. We can also You can also sign up for our newsletter, which we put out every Monday now with uh, a selection of the top China Africa stories plus a podcast. 
and also a link to an academic or think tank article on China-Africa relations. So it's a great way if you don't really want to immerse yourself too much in China-Africa kind of uh, geekery, this is a good way to do it. Just sign up for it at our website. Also, we've got a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic uh, discussion going on over on our Facebook page. Too bad, Viola, you behind the great firewall cannot see this. Uh, but uh, for those of you not in China on a VPN, uh, head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And last of all, if you want to follow this podcast, just go to Stitcher. We've got 200 followers on Stitcher, by the way, Kobus, which I was very oh, impressed great. by. Uh, and also, best of all, just go to iTunes. Just type in China Africa and we'll pop right up there. And if you could please, please leave a comment. Uh, it really helps us. Or a vote a ranking for us, one of the stars, because then it surfaces up uh, the show for others to see in iTunes. And we really appreciate that. So we're all grateful for all the feedback that you give us. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.